0: the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at www.stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 4 and is from the service for February 19th, 2023, the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany. Scripture lessons are Leviticus 19 verses 1 and 2 and 9 through 18 and Matthew 5 verses 38 through 48. The sermon is entitled, Turning the World Upside Down. We hope you enjoy the episode. Our scripture lesson for tonight, two scripture lessons, come from the book of Leviticus and the gospel according to Matthew. Our first lesson is from Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, and verses 9 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, say to the whole community of the Israelites, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also, do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord, your God. You must not steal nor deceive nor lie to each other. You must not swear falsely by my name, desecrating your God's name in doing so. I am the Lord. You must not oppress your neighbors or rob them. Do not withhold a hired laborer's pay overnight. You must not insult a deaf person or put some obstacle in front of a blind person that would cause them to trip. Instead, fear your God, I am the Lord. You must not act unjustly in a legal case. Do not show favoritism to the poor or deference to the great. You must judge your fellow Israelites fairly. Do not go around slandering your people. Do not stand by while your your neighbor's blood is shed, I am the Lord. You must not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your fellow Israelites strongly so you don't become responsible for his sin. You must not take revenge nor hold a grudge against any of your people. Instead, you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you." You have heard that it was said you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, one of my favorite books as a kid, and still today, is the novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Toward the beginning, we encounter a character named Ford Prefect, who works for said Hitchhiker's Guide, and who has come to Earth to update Earth's entry in the guide. The entry had been exactly one word long. It read simply, harmless. And after years of extensive research, Ford edited the entry so that it now reads mostly harmless. Talk about damning with faint praise. Every once in a while, when I worked on campus, I'd get asked about the United Methodist community by someone who was clearly suspicious of religion. They'd say something like, so what are the Methodists like? and clergy develop an ear for this kind of thing. We can read the subtext of a question like that because what they're often asking is, are you guys one of those whack job sects that don't believe in evolution and hate gay people? And so when I got a question like that, I'd often respond with something like, we're a very open-minded and inclusive community committed to hospitality and justice. And in my head and perhaps in the head of the questioner, what I'm really saying is something like, we're harmless. And I think of that entry in the Hitchhiker's Guide, and I wonder whether in the grand record of human history, the entry for the Methodist Church and so many others would be something like mostly harmless. Which would be disappointing, because to tell you the truth, the old school Methodists were anything but harmless, and in case you're in need of a reminder, we were the ones instrumental in getting the 18th Amendment ratified, you know, the one that banned alcohol for the entire country. I mean those were the days right we haven't been troublemakers like that in a long time today we're harmless of course that should be hardly surprising the jesus we often talk about is likewise kind of harmless i mean those of us who are christian who are progressive christians are often fond of talking about jesus as if he were a warm fuzzy prophet of love and peace and happiness, turn the other cheek, love, forgiveness, peace, and all we need are some flowers and a Volkswagen bus and the image of the hippie Jesus would be complete. But here's the thing, Jesus was dangerous. He was a troublemaker. And, And the two criminals crucified next to him were not the only insurrectionists on Golgotha that morning. See, even when we look at Jesus' turn-the-other-cheek, we discover that it's not quite so passive as it sounds. In the ancient world, when you slapped someone with the back of your hand, you did so because they were an inferior to them, or you they were an inferior to you. If you slapped them with the open palm of your hand— That meant that they were an equal or a superior. That's still kind of the rule, by the way. You're watching one of those old-fashioned movies where men and women seem to slap each other all the time. Take note of how the men slap the women, the back of the hand, and how the women slap the man with the palm. So here's the thing. If you get slapped with the back of someone's hand and you turn the other cheek... They have no choice but to slap you open-palmed as an equal. See, Jesus is not telling the disciples to be submissive and passive. He's telling them to claim dignity and status. That's subversive. Likewise, the command to give someone who asks for your cloak your shirt as well or your shirt and cloak depends on how it gets translated, is to take advantage of the fact that to cause another person to become naked was a shameful thing. And the one who demanded the cloak now is all but begging the person to take his shirt back so that the first person does not incur shame. Likewise, a Roman legionary could compel you to carry his pack one mile. It was unlawful for him to compel you to carry it for him more than that. So when Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile, he's not telling you to be a doormat. He's telling you to turn the tables, creating a comical scene where a Roman soldier is now chasing you down the road, begging you to drop the pack lest he get in trouble. So this turn-the-other-cheek ethic it's nonviolent, but it would be a mistake to say that it's passive. It's deeply subversive and far from harmless. New Testament scholar Craig Hill points out that any theology of Jesus that doesn't account for why he was crucified is no theology of Jesus at all. Jesus and the prophets before and after him were not happy hippies with nice ideas who talked about God. They were, as a friend of mine likes to put it, dissident intellectuals contesting the power of empire. And it's worth noting that when Jesus is crucified, they hung a sign over him saying, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the jews he was not crucified because he went around saying be nice to each other or don't fight back it was not because he did the occasional healing on the sabbath he was crucified as an insurrectionist as one who claimed a title of kingship and who frequently announced the kingdom of god was on its way and thereby threatened the security of the state according to john's gospel The sign that held the charge was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. John's not reminding us just how cosmopolitan first century Jerusalem was. He's making a point that Jesus was condemned in the language of the religious establishment, Hebrew, the political establishment, Latin, and the cultural establishment, Greek. So you don't get crucified for being a warm, fuzzy, peace-loving hippie. You don't get crucified when you're harmless or even mostly harmless. So here's the thing. If Jesus was such a troublemaker, then why is Christianity so often part of the establishment? Why are Christians so vocal about maintaining the status quo? There is, of course, always a strong desire to make faith compatible with the status quo. New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson has said that there are a great many Christians for whom the central message of Christianity is support your local sheriff. And after Christianity was decriminalized by the Emperor Constantine, Christians, now legitimate, began to adopt the outward appearances of legitimate authority, they were now able to move out of their house churches and build church buildings. We adopted the basilica as the model, just the Roman courthouse. That's what we modeled our churches on. Our clergy began to wear vestments, robes, chasubles, stoles, all of which had been vestments of the Roman magisterium, where once we had been a renegade outlaw sect whose leader had been crucified as an enemy of the state, now we were respectable, official, imperial, status quo. And we certainly have become part of the establishment. There's a reason why those Methodists named their national university American University, because the two words used to be near synonyms. But can Christian faith be authentic, and part of the establishment? Can we maintain both the gospel and the status quo? Do we have to be cultural radicals? I mean, Jesus was an insurrectionist, a troublemaker, subverting the established order. So here's the awkward question. If Jesus was this way, and if an essential part of Christian faith is to be countercultural and resist the structures of authority and power, then why don't we do that? Now, part of the problem might be that we think we are doing that. Do we gather on Sundays in worship? We meet at prayer meetings or in the social justice actions and service projects. And these places are what are sometimes referred to as sites of resistance for us. But what if they're really something else? See, there's something I should probably confess to you. I have confessed this to other congregations. I I, I don't know if I've confessed it here, but we're in church, so it's appropriate. What I need to confess is that I am a dangerous lawbreaker. My entire drive from Florida, I drove over the speed limit, sometimes as much as nine miles over the speed limit. I know, it's a wonder they allow me to walk around freely. But I'm not just a lawbreaker. I'm a brazen, dangerous lawbreaker. I mean, sometimes on that highway, I just drive right past the police. Yep. I'd be going 74 miles an hour in a 70, and i just drive right past the police. I don't care who knows it. I'd even slow down to 73 miles an hour. Of course, I never do get a ticket doing that. On reflection, though, no one does. Isn't that odd? I mean, why don't the police write tickets for driving a few miles over the speed limit? In fact, in a 65-mile-an-hour zone, you could probably push 75 before anyone would even notice. In the 70 zones, you have to go over 80 before anyone pays any attention. Do you ever wonder why they do that? I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with the traffic flow. See, it's a pressure valve. By giving us space to rebel against the system. Interestingly, they allow us to rebel within the context of the system. That is, the system has a built-in rebellion zone. We all know that we can speed a little bit. It makes us feel like we're getting away with something, but we all know that there's a limit to that. When we speed by five miles an hour, we think we're resisting, but in reality, we're participating in it. It's the same reason your boss doesn't care if you gather in the break room with your coworkers and you talk about it behind his back. Because as long as you show up at nine and you punch out at five, you're still participating in the system. And in fact, talking behind your boss's back may be necessary to keep the system functioning smoothly. See, they let us drive at 71 miles an hour so that we won't drive 90 miles an hour on the sidewalk. They let us talk about them behind their backs so that we'll still show up for work. They'll let us protest on the sidewalks in permit-approved areas so that we don't storm Government buildings, and all the while the machine keeps on going. So, what if it turns out that what we think of as resistance by the church isn't really resistance, but is just the pressure valve that allows the system to keep functioning? That's what if the church just helps us assuage our consciences on a Sunday morning so that we can be dutiful parts of the system the other six days of the week? What if, far from standing outside the system, the church is part of it, enabling it to keep functioning? What if Sunday worship is nothing more than our gatherings in the employee lounge, griping about our bosses, but then Monday comes and we go right back to work supporting the very thing we oppose? What if we're part of the problem? The clergy robes that I have worn are no simple vestige of imperial entanglement. In addition to being a reminder that the church is never at the forefront of fashion, they are a reminder that the church is often complicit in the very things we claim to oppose, because while we talk about opposition and resistance, our behavior betrays our participation in the system. And so the tragic irony is that we often imagine we're fighting back when we're being used to perpetuate the interests of the powerful. See, it's easy to look at Jesus' teachings, as teachings about kindness and niceness. And the powerful are always happy to have religions that are about niceness. See, niceness makes for good and obedient citizens. Niceness makes it impolite to try to upend things. Niceness makes you more likely to keep the status quo and maintain good civic order. It would be rude to do otherwise, But Jesus's teachings aren't about being nice. They're about being righteous and not the kind of self-righteous that we see on display too often, but a righteousness that places the powerless first and the powerful last. Jesus didn't come to teach a manners class. He came to herald the coming of the kingdom of God, a reality that upends the status quo. And you get a sense of this in Jesus' own teaching style. In each section of the teaching, he prefaces it with something like, you have heard it said, and then continues, but I say to you. Now, biblical scholars refer to these constructions as the antitheses, because what he says, second, is in contrast to what has come before. Except that it isn't. See, much of the early biblical scholarship was done by Germans, and those Germans were huge fans of the Hegelian dialectic. That is, that's a philosophical system by George Hegel, who saw history as a series of unfolding conflicts and resolutions. There was the thesis, the original idea, the antithesis, its opposite, and then the synthesis, which was the blending of the two into one. And this idea was so prevalent that these interpreters didn't even realize they were using it. And so they tended to see the thesis as Judaism, Jesus as the antithesis, and then Christianity as the synthesis. I mean, it's a great interpretation, except for the part that it's not at all supported by the facts, because it is difficult to view Jesus as an antithesis to the law he's referencing it when he doesn't contradict it, he amplifies it. And that's an important point, because when we realize what the law was trying to do, we get a whole new understanding of what Jesus is doing. The Jewish law found in the books of the Torah was a covenantal arrangement between God and the people Israel. In this arrangement, God agrees to provide steadfast faithfulness and love, and Israel agrees to provide justice and righteousness. Together, this contract would produce shalom, or wholeness. One of the hallmarks of this covenant was that Israel was supposed to model an alternative society compared to the nations around them. So whereas the surrounding nations would put their trust in idols and material wealth, in royal power and military might, Israel was supposed to place its trust in God. It was supposed to provide for the widow, the orphan, the stranger. And you get a sense of that from the passage we read earlier in Leviticus, passages that require orchard owners to leave fallen fruit for the poor, farmers to leave fallen grain for the poor, along with the unharvested edges of their field. Provision was made in the law to ensure that those who were frequently marginalized were shown compassion and justice. It was a way of turning the world on its head. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's not contradicting that approach. He's amplifying it. He's not just critiquing the power structures of the world. He's challenging his followers to make those structures irrelevant. See, it might be a perfectly acceptable response to say, whenever the powerful strike you upon the cheek, punch them back extra hard. That'll teach them. I mean, that's not unlike the advice that Sean Connery gives to Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness in The Untouchables, when he says, when one of them draws a knife, you draw a gun. When they put one of your guys in the hospital, you put two of his in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. I mean, that's viscerally satisfying, to be sure. As satisfying as when nerdy George McFly hauls off and decks the bully Biff Tannen in Back to the Future. But as satisfying as those responses are, they still play by the system's rules. In effect, they legitimize the violence of the oppressor by saying that violence is right if used by the right people. Jesus wants us to do something else. His instructions not only resist validating the structures of violence, they turn those structures on their heads. Suddenly, now the wielder of violence must treat his victim as an equal. Suddenly, now the wealthy exploiter has become the one ashamed. Suddenly, now, the military occupier is at the mercy of the occupied. These things that Jesus is telling us to do are nonviolent, but they are not passive. And they certainly challenge the status quo. They turn the world upside down. It's such an important part of faith to remember. So often we view our faith as a bunch of instructions on how to be nice or how to be good citizens. But Christ was crucified for leading an insurrection as the testimony to the kingdom of God. It was a non-violent insurrection, not a single building stormed, not a single piece of property threatened, or public official lynched, but it was an insurrection no less disruptive for the ways that it called the legitimacy of the empire into question and turned the world on its head. The resurrection is God's vindication of the insurrection that Christ began. It's a sign that the world is being changed, it's being turned upside down. In light of the resurrection, we can no longer afford, no longer can afford to ignore the ways in which we are a part of the problem. If we would live out the gospel, we can no longer afford to be harmless. We are called to be the staging ground for an insurrection grounded in love and in the justice of God that can turn the world itself upside down. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us again soon.